This is the second Sunday of Advent, and every second Sunday of Advent we read one of the versions in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, about our old friend John, don't sing jingle bells to me, the Baptist. So we read Mark's version uh, this week, and I'm going to talk about that in a little while. But this is the second Sunday of Advent where another theme is introduced, a couple of them. The, maybe one of the important ones is repentance, and the other one is what it means when we speak of good tidings. So I'm going to preach on the reading from Isaiah, from Second Peter, and then from Mark's Gospel. Uh, the, this uh, reading from Isaiah is probably one of the most well-known, and it is principally because uh, it's in Handel's Messiah. And I think people have heard this uh, over and over again. In the English version, it says, Comfort ye, or comfort, comfort my people. If you read it in the original language Hebrew, it says, Speak to the heart of my people. The English translators who translated the King James Bible believed that comfort was a word that was more accessible to the readership in that time in the 17th century. But it doesn't, I think, speak to the heart of my people may have some resonance too in terms of how we understand what it means when we think about God's comfort. That God's comfort is both to the heart and the mind in the Hebrew reckoning, the heart is the seat of the intellect. So that sort of connects to what Edwin Friedman said that I've talked about a lot, and that is that thinking and feeling occur simultaneously. And the recent studies on the brain uh, tell us that we have kind of a liquid nervous system. So thinking and feeling work together uh, in some ways. But Isaiah is speaking here, if you want to amaze your friends and keep this on ice, uh, you can tell them that we're hearing today from second Isaiah. There were three Isaiahs, Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah, or trito Isaiah. Why do we say that and who cares? Because it makes sense out of the length of time that uh, is described in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah would have had to live a couple of hundred years for this to, to really uh, come to fruition. But he's speaking about some circumstances, second Isaiah, that are real history. And this is important because over the last few weeks I've been talking about the apocalyptic literature in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the descriptions of how God is going to act in future and how God has acted in the past, speak and use language in a way that may be very inaccessible to people living in 2014, or they just accept that someday we are going to have things happen that are uh, incredible. And how are we going to make sense out of what, what that means? So we need to know that much of the apocalyptic writing in the Bible is talking about concrete historical circumstances. And a great deal of the apocalyptic imagery is speaking about things that have already occurred. But that doesn't mean that those things are not predictive 
of the future so that we can understand in some way that God is going to work in a fashion that will ultimately lead to God putting the world to rights. And that that's the goal that we're speaking of in terms of um, the second coming. In this reading from Isaiah, we also read about good tidings. And there are two two Bibles, two Old Testaments. One was written in Hebrew and one was written in Greek. And the Greek New Testament for good tidings uses the word that we use for gospel. The good news. Evangelion. So they're speaking about this in Isaiah or Isaiah is speaking about this uh, in one of the translations. How we understand God's good news to us about his unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. So Isaiah sets us up because it's going to be quoted in Mark's gospel. In today's reading, where John the Baptist is introduced. But first, I need to talk about this history. Isaiah is speaking about the return from exile in Babylon, the Babylonian captivity. And this return began in 583 BCE. And he's describing now the coming back and the things that are going to occur, God's gracious plan for the cosmos and how God's people fit into this and what it means. This is important because in the time of Jesus, there were many who believed that the return from exile had not been completed that the full restoration had not taken place, that God's plan still had to continue. And Jesus believed this. And he, in his preaching and teaching, said that the restoration has now been completed. The return from exile has been uh, completed. And you will see this in me. I am the fulfillment of this. And in my words and in my works, we will see what it means to speak about a new world and how we understand transformation. Well, how do you and I appropriate something like that in 2014? And I think we have to do it by understanding that when we speak about the first coming, which is the historical birth of Jesus, which we'll celebrate on Christmas, is one thing, but the second coming is something that in one sense may be in the future, but is also in the hearts of all faithful people. Because you and I know in our own lives that we have been through circumstances where God has come to us again in a very dramatic way. Father Thomas Keating, in a lecture I heard him give, said that uh, God is always on the move. So that when we have taught in the traditional theology that God is unchanging, God is always changing. And it looks like it's unchangeable because God moves so fast. He said in, in part of the lecture, maybe that's why Elijah could only see his back. Because he was on the move. And as soon as you saw his back, he was back again. And what that means is, is that God comes to us in 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 the same but different ways in our lives and speaks to circumstances that are for us important 
and allow us uh, uh, the possibility that we can move in a direction that's different than we are moving now. We'll talk about this when we get to repentance. Second Peter is the uh, most recent writing in the New Testament. It was written about 125 A.D. So, to use the fancy term, it is pseudonymous. It is attributed to Peter, but it was probably written by one of his disciples. You know, this is not said for the purpose of debunking the truth of the scriptures. It's said from the point of view of understanding the continuity of thought and the tradition in these scriptures so that people can understand the fidelity by which the original of First Peter and others, Paul, for example, uh, their tradition was preserved in their followers, in their disciples. And we can see some consistency in the way they described uh, God's way with the world, God's way with the cosmos. So Peter is talking about something important, and that is, well, he's not come again yet. And what are we going to do 125 years out? And what we're going to do is begin to realize that somehow uh, this fact permits us the opportunity to grow in holiness. It permits us the opportunity to understand what it means to live a life congruent with God's principles, to develop the disciplines, to develop all of the things I talked about last week in the mystical path, the ascent to God, purgation, emptying, study, discipline, and patience. Five things that you can put in your hands and live into the promises of God. Just purgation is an old-fashioned word. It means to purge yourself of all of those things that keep you from being centered in God. Uh, maybe repentance has something to do with that. I'll say about that something else about that in a moment. Uh, emptying is the process where you learn how to get rid of the distractions in your thinking. And when you're talking about the life of prayer, it has to do with how you keep those distractions at bay. None of us can ever get rid of them. They're like uh, sitting in the front of the Suez Canal while you watch the ships go by. Those are all your thoughts, right? And it's very hard sometimes to concentrate. Father Keating says one of the things you can do when that happens and all that stuff goes in front of you and distracts is to wave goodbye to them. Bye-bye, right? They have no power now. So that is the process of learning to become less distracted. You don't need to think about this just in terms of your prayer. It's important for all of us to be able to uh, learn how not to be distracted in order to do, do what we have to do. When I was in seminary, the dean taught us that uh, the first dean taught us that we needed to understand that it was important to observe the duties of state which is an old-fashioned term which means get up and brush your teeth. And the same is true about all of the things that you need to do. That's the discipline part of the five-fold uh, path. Discipline is the interior self-regulation that you need to meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of you. Study is the process by which you become the best student you can be of all the things you need to be a student of the deep things of Christianity, how to grow in holiness, 
but also all the things you need to know in order to fulfill your vocation in the world, to keep up, you know. When I go to my doctor, I hope that she's been keeping up with the literature, don't you? I'd like to know that she uh, knows the, the latest thing about what's going on and whether it may be useful or not. So people need to keep up. People need to do that. And finally, the most difficult in this whole process is patience. Because it occurs, uh, this all occurs in God's time. So Peter is telling us these things. This is from Dr. Reginald Fuller, famous New Testament scholar. Watchfulness is a part of Christian living. You can use watchfulness, keeping awake, mindfulness, whatever it is you want to use to describe looking and seeing or focusing on what it is you're doing. Brother Lawrence in the practice of the presence of God said, if you're in the kitchen, you need to wash the dishes and you need to pay attention to what you're doing. Paying attention is important, even about ordinary, the quotidian tasks of everyday living, that that is important. Rightly understood, the imminent hope in Christianity is a motivation for the pursuit of holiness and godliness of life. So we're not doing this merely to uh, um, assure us of post-mortem bliss. The pursuit of holiness and godliness has something to do with being the best human beings we can be and understanding that that is necessary for us to be prepared, to be watchful, and to also understand, as he said, that in the New Testament, the promise of the second coming, however we understand that, is going to be a reality, and we will be living in a new heaven and a new earth, where they're both together, here, in history. And Peter, Second Peter is at pains to do that. In Mark's gospel, the earliest gospel, by the way, Mark's gospel, it was written about 65 or 70 A.D. And Mark's gospel is maybe the most apocalyptic and it's also the shortest. But John the Baptist comes and he speaks and he's described as a voice crying in the wilderness. About 10 years ago, there was a New Yorker cartoon of a woman in the desert wearing a DKNY suit or something like that. And the caption of the cartoon, there was no talking, the caption of the cartoon was, a voice crying in the wilderness. And the woman at the bottom of the cartoon, the woman is saying, get me out of this wilderness. But John the Baptist is announcing the coming of Jesus and he is the herald of the good news and we have the word in Mark's gospel that we read in the Old Testament reading from Isaiah, the good news, the evangelion, that he's here to announce that he's the precursor of Jesus and that we need also to know that it is now indisputable that Jesus' uh, Jesus's ministry flowed out of 
the ministry of John the Baptist. They very well may have been related. And one of the things that we've begun to discover is that John the Baptist may have had more than just a passing acquaintance with the Essenes in Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are from. So it is entirely possible to see how uh, he would be somewhat apocalyptic in his pronouncements because the people at Qumran believed that God was working a work that is going to restore the temple in Jerusalem and to purify it at last and to make it a place, in their view, that would once again be worthy of worship. So, John, there's all this backstory to what John the Baptist is talking about and what needs to happen. So I was thinking about what the assignment should be for this week. Repentance is one of the things that John the Baptist talks about. And, you know, repentance uh, has more to do than uh, saying, I'm going to now let go of all my sinning. Repentance is to change the direction you are looking for happiness. So it's a constant uh, thing that you've got to do in order to realize, am I looking in the wrong direction for this? And I need to do it by turning around and looking at my life in a different fashion. There are two words in the New Testament for repentance. And they all have to do with the conversion of heart. But the one that's used most, metanoia, means to turn around and look at things in a new way. But in the meaning of the word, it's not really to resolve to do that. It means that you have made a decision to put that resolution in your hands and to do something. There's another word, epistrophe, which is this means to turn around and look at your life in a new way but it focuses itself on our internal, mental, spiritual, and emotional states. So it is a word that has the most force and effect when it uh, is the process of conversion that happens. So maybe you go from epistrophe to metanoia, whatever that might mean, but it's important. You know, it was one of Luther's insights that he realized as he learned how to read Greek that in the Latin Bible... The Vulgate Bible, that was Jerome's translation from the original languages, when it says uh, you need to repent, it said penitentium agite, do penance. So we had thought, well, that's what it is. Repentance means you've got to do penance and you're always, you know, have an armload of gladiolas on your knees and you're going up the steps, uh, you know, into the church. But metanoiete means to turn around and look at your life in a new way and to understand there's far more involved in this than merely focusing on your sinful behavior. And that was a very great and powerful insight. So this week, I would suggest that you think about the possibility of how you can be more farsighted, how you can stay awake, how you can be more attentive, how you can pay attention in the ordinary and commonplace things. And also to see that uh, you have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos. And one of those things may be uh, to be in a position to offer comfort to others in big and small ways.
so that you can be an instrument of that uh, and therefore have a transformative effect on those that you know. Amen. <laughs>